1: I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. The Blunt Post with Vic. Baroness Carolyn Cox is a crossbench life peer who has sat under this title in the British House of Lords since March 1983. Baroness Carolyn Cox became a life peer in 1983 for her contributions to education and has served as a deputy speaker of the House of Lords from 1985 to 2005. Lady Caroline is also the founder of an organization called Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. Baroness Cox's humanitarian aid work has taken her on many missions to conflict zones, allowing her to obtain first-hand evidence of human rights violations and humanitarian needs. Areas traveled include Artsakh, also known as Nagar karabakh no Sudan, Nigeria, Uganda, jungles of Burma, and the communities suffering conflict in Indonesia. Lady Cox
2: Good afternoon. We're from here. Where are you?
1: Good afternoon to you. I'm in Los Angeles.
2: It's good morning to you.
1: Thank you. So good to see you in person.
2: Well, it's good to see you as well. I just give myself a couple of cushions because I'm only half on screen.
1: Yeah, get comfortable. How are you?
2: Oh, never been fighting fit.
1: Yeah,
2: awesome. I've been too busy in my life because well, there's all the tragedies of Armenia and like, of course. also we work in other countries and they've all exploded into terrible situations like Sudan has just grown up in war, Burma, Myanmar, uh, that is suffering from horrendous military oppression and killings, and uh, Nigeria, Yes. thousands of people killed and none of it gets covered on the media, but we have partners there so we do visit and we do um, try and take aid and advocacy.
1: Yeah, I was reading up on your latest developments and your your schedule, and I thought, wow, it, it, I can't I just can't imagine almost all the work that you do throughout the world. Um, of course, you know, I'm most familiar with your work in Artsakh. You are, you know, I just got back from Armenia. I was shooting there, finishing up my uh, documentary, and just people just love you so much. You're really an icon. There's no one like you in, in all of... A world that has done so much for Artsakh, the Armenian people, for human rights and justice. It's just really incredible. I'm so honored. You know, I've interviewed some of the most high profile members of Congress, and some of them are members of the Armenian Congressional Caucus, and they've done great work and they fight the good fight, but no one has done what you've done on the ground, in person, face to face. Uh, I'm truly, truly honored.
2: Well, I just want to say thank you to the Armenian people for holding a front line of freedom for the rest of the world who paid as a high sacrifice for it and still do and still are. And I thought that, was it Sizzle you called it, that little short section of film you showed, was brilliant. Oh, thank Absolutely you. Brilliant. Superb. I mean, it really did get some of the agony and the anguish. But um, I look forward to seeing the whole thing because it's so powerful. Thank and you. And it breaks my heart. Um, well, thank you for putting truth on the record. I just wish we could get the international community to bring forth the necessary responses from Azerbaijan or impose sanctions from the other. It's,
1: it's very challenging. We're going up against uh, oil money yep. and a friend of Azerbaijan, uh, Turkey, which is in NATO. It's a very, yeah. it's a very challenging thing to go against. is. So I wanted to ask you, as a non-Armenian who's been going to Artsakh, what's your perspective on Artsakh, the people, the land?
2: Well, I have an enormous respect and affection for the people of Artsakh. Uh, As you know, the land is historically Armenian. Some of the oldest Armenian churches and uh, various sort of um, evidence that Armenians have been there for centuries and centuries. And when Stalin took his policy of creating oblasts and relocating people in uh, regions in not very friendly context, of course, um, Artsakh was cut off from Armenia and put inside Azerbaijan. And then since then, they've had a difficult time. They had the um, very intense war in the early 1990s I was there many times during that war, and uh, tremendous suffering Uh, with the characteristic Armenian resilience and courage, uh, the people uh, pulled themselves out of that dreadful situation and rebuilt Artsakh uh, very well, and um, also um, generated and maintained the fundamental principles of democracy, human rights, uh, and so on. So it was doing as well as could be expected under the circumstances. And then, of course, this 44-day war broke out, and uh, the suffering continues to be, and will be, for time to come, certainly. Very, very great. So my appreciation, as I said at the beginning, uh, to your people, that you've held a front line of faith and freedom for the rest of the world paid a high price for it, still paying a high price for it, and you're not getting the support you should get from main members of the international community.
1: This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Baroness Carolyn Cox. We all have different sort of ideas and such, but what do you think happened? What got Azerbaijan and Turkey to think that they can orchestrate something like this in 2020 and, you know, in 44 days, just really bulldoze through this land and kill so many people. Uh, it, from from sort of like the international perspective of how this could have happened.
2: Well, I think they reckon they could get away with it with impunity. And also they had the military resources to ensure military success. So I think, unfortunately, both of those proved true. Um, they have got away with impunity, with horrendous war crimes and crimes against humanity, which they did in the war in the 1990s as well, um, with impunity. So I think they could fairly well uh, count on impunity. And then of course, their massive military resources helped by Turkey and with the massive use of drones. And I understand Turkey um, recruited uh, several thousand, I think, about 4,000 or so Syrian jihadists to come and fight alongside the Azeris. So they were very well resourced in personnel and in weaponry. And the drones were a very different factor from the war in the 1990s. And they, I think, did a lot to destroy the Armenian position.
1: Yeah, that was a very good uh, explanation of of what happened and how this was possible. Um, How about the agencies? such as European Union, United Nations, OSCE, Council of Europe, European Parliament. Uh, What do you think about their, uh, what I call the deafening silence during this?
2: I think I could echo your words. Um, There have been blatant war crimes and crimes against humanity, and nobody so far has taken as to account. The British government, I raised this issue with colleagues many times in the British Parliament, and all they say is, well, we're talking to the President of Azerbaijan, we're talking to the President of Armenia, and it finishes with the talk. And uh, they've done nothing action-oriented to bring about any change, and particularly what's worrying everyone, I think, is the impunity which Azerbaijan continues to hold prisoners, detainees, soldiers, and some civilians, and treats them appallingly, and it's getting away with that, although it's breaking the uh, agreement in the ceasefire. When the ceasefire uh, was signed, it required both sides to return all prisoners. Right. Well, Arminia did, and Azerbaijan has not, and still has many. And I think one of the most brutal uh, aspects is in a number of cases, when they've captured a prisoner, they would take his phone, and then they would carry out atrocities, uh, and maybe even killing, and then video that on the phone and send it back to his family. And I was speaking to a lady in Armenia and she lost her husband. So I just dare not look at my phone. And those are appalling crimes against humanity.
1: Yes. I'm, I'm once again just impressed with just how much you know and, and how detailed you know about what's been happening. It is definitely tragic. And uh, I'm... I'm, is it the, the fact that all of these bodies, all these agencies who are supposed to, uh, you know, who were supposed to really look at this and do something, especially the OSCE, uh, is it because of Azerbaijan's oil, do you think, and money and uh, all of that, that's really tilting uh, the level, the powers here?
2: Well, it's certainly a major factor with the UK government. Um, way back in the previous war in the 1990s, I brought back photographs of children shredded by cluster bombs. And I said this on the floor of the house, so I'm not saying anything that's not been known in public. And I took these to a very senior person in the Foreign Office. I don't see who, because it was an unofficial briefing. But I showed these photographs and I said, will the British government make representation of the government of Azerbaijan to stop drop, dropping cluster bombs on civilians? It's against international law. The reply, no country has an interest in other countries, only interests. We have oil interests in Azerbaijan, good morning. Well, I mean, I quoted that little floor of the house without giving the name, and I said, I'm ashamed to be British. I'm not naive, I can understand commercial interest, I can understand strategic interest, but I don't think it's the long-term interest of any nation yet those override completely concern for human rights. I don't think the majority of British people would want oil at the price of cluster bombs on children, at least without saying something about it. And I think we're in exactly the same position as you were there in the early 1990s.
1: Wow, I uh, my radio show uh, is called The Blunt Post with Vic, and my publication is called The Blunt Post. It's good to uh, it's good to know that you are very blunt too. I just uh, I'm so uh, I, I admire that so much that you don't sort of uh, filter or sugarcoat anything.
2: Um, you can't. It's too serious, and it's too such terrible suffering. You can't minimize it.
1: Yeah. Why Armenia? You, you know, there are so many different uh, atrocities happening throughout the world. What has made you such a great, I don't even have a word for it. You know, I feel like you're the caretaker. You're the, I don't know, the guardian of Artsakh. Why Artsakh?
2: Well, just to rewind the tape a moment, and I introduce myself, I always say I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention, a baroness by astonishment. I wasn't into politics, as the first baroness I'd ever met. You wake up one morning and find a baroness looking herself out of the bathroom mirror. It's quite a shock, but obviously it's a privilege because it means you speak in the House of Lords, the upper house, as it's called, of the British Parliament. So, how do I use this privilege? And the idea came very clearly. It's a wonderful place to be a voice for people whose voices are not heard. And so I've tried to use my role there. Um, I'm, I'm 84. So I've been there for a good many years, I can't believe it. I was introduced in 83. So, um, but anyway. Great. Right. Try to, to use, thank you, use that role. Um, and in the early days, I was getting behind the Iron Curtain in Poland, a lot of work in Poland, the Medical Aid, Poland Fund, and the agalonian Trust taking things in and out, which academics and, other people wanted, which they couldn't get in by any other means, but we never mixed the two. And then I got to work in Russia, where there was a desperate need for help for orphaned and abandoned children who were not given any care at all, uh, physical care, not hardly. And when they reached the age of leaving an orphanage, uh, they had nothing. They, had no, they were, Many were labelled oligophrenics, little brain. And therefore, they were denied an education beyond basic literacy. And so they couldn't do any job, and they are really the kind of slave labour of the Soviet Union, huge numbers. And then as I was doing that, I got contacted by Yelena Bonosakharov, and she asked me if I would speak at a big conference on human rights that she was organising in Moscow. And it was Rostropovich played the opening concert. I mean, it was high-quality stuff. And then I was chairing one of the sessions, and Zori Belayan, one of the great art circle leaders, was there. And he described how the Azeris had started their operational ring encirclement of villages and townships and in bombardment and rounding up the civilians and doing nasty things to them and stealing all their properties and driving off their land. And he gave us the names of all, I think it was 14 at that time, that had suffered. I, I wouldn't sit stand by that 14 in court. That's a, a memory, but it was a figure in that area. And um, they all suffered this terrible operation ring and the helicopters would fly overhead and the black forces of Azerbaijan carried out atrocities. And and, yeah, I reported this to the full conference and I was asked to lead a delegation down to Armenia and um, we went with Zori Balayan. And we got the evidence from all kinds of evidence. We went to Goris, where some of the people who'd had to flee, from uh, Badadzov, were actually in Gorbalees and there's an elderly gentleman, he was just weeping, he said, I can see my home from here. I just want to go home, but of course he couldn't. And um, then we went up um, further north in order to cross the border into Azerbaijan. And so you could say we've been both to Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is important. And um, we did cross that border and a bit unofficially, but we, we related to the, um, Azeri forces there. And um, we came back and reported all we'd found. And that really got a certain amount of interest, but also got my passion starting to grow. I then did go to Azerbaijan, to Baku, because you always need to hear both sides. And um, that's a story for another day, but it was... Well, I'll tell it very quickly now. I wanted to visit Artsakh from Baku. I couldn't go in from um, Armenia then. and. Um, So I said to the president, I'd like to visit uh, Artsakh, please. And he said, well, you can't, it's in Armenia. And I said, well, Armenia, let me cross over to Azerbaijan, my first visit. It's always important to see both points of you. So he said, well, okay. if Armenia will send a plane to Baku, then I will agree for you to go to Artsakh. And um, yes. And anyway, he never thought I would. They cut off all our telephones, naturally. But then I had with the yellow you know, Bonasakarov son, who was very helpful, and we um, he used public telephone lines to get in touch with his mother. And um, she got in touch with Zori Balawan. And they did send a plane <laughs> full of Armenian soldiers, but they sent a plane, and it did give us a chance to go and visit the villages inside uh, Artsakh, uh, inside well the, the bombed out enclaves. And it was so important. So I've been to both countries, and um, we were in Stepanakert, we were being hosted by the local head of the Communist Party. I think it was Vice President of Azerbaijan. Uh, His name will come back to me in a moment. And um, anyway, they were telling us all their side of things. And I got a message while we were sitting in the uh, House of Parliament in the main square in Stepanakert, and um, saying, in the next building, there are hundreds of people who suffered from Azerbaijan, and they want to tell you their stories. So I said, well, you know, I'd like to meet people in the next building. And they said, well, it's not possible. So I said, why well, isn't it not possible? So I got up and walked out <laughs> and, uh, with colleagues, and um, the, the whole thing was surrounded by wire, uh, as it is in war times and so on. So we just climbed through barbouin, <laughs> and we got to the other building. And we did hear stories from the Armenians of what they'd suffered, had they been, you know, men had been beaten so they could never have children again, etc., uh, etc. Et Rape, I mean, a whole thing is just horrendous. But they wouldn't have let us hear that if we hadn't walked through the Barbara. But tragic, tragic situations. Yeah. And um, as I said, there was very little international help for Armenia and Artsakh in those days. Do you remember what year that was? It would have been probably 92, 92. could t- Check it out. Because um, John yeah. Eibner from CSI Switzerland, um, yeah. he came really into ArtSec, wrote a book called Ethnic Cleansing in Progress, the War in nagorno karabakh And it's got a lot of the details in that. So I can check that out. It's yeah. probably yeah. 92, I should think.
1: It makes sense. Well, because the ceasefire maybe. happened in 94.
2: Yeah, it was either 91 or 92. It was fairly early on in my visits to that part of the world. But in fact, because I felt i have been to Armenia once, I had to go to Azerbaijan next time. So it's probably 91.
1: This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Baroness Carolyn Cox. Uh, where do we go from here? What, what should we do? What is not being done? to resolve this issue because as you know, you know, Artsakh is in this really volatile position where they have no leverage. Azerbaijan is cutting off their electricity and water and harassing them and shooting, shooting through the borders at Armenian positions and Armenian people. Um, what can be done? Sometimes I feel, I just got back from Armenia as I said, and few people feel a little powerless right now.
2: Well, I was in Armenia a few weeks ago. We went to Sunik. Of course, it's where Azerbaijan is encroaching. And we went down to the, one of the main towns that's on focus of Azeri attention. Kapan, I think it's called. Kapan? Um, right. Yeah. And we went down there, and then we walked quite a little way, walked to a village right on the border. Uh, well, you know, what, what should have been a border. And um, Azerbaijan was already occupying you know, within a few hundred meters. And they were... I've got a photograph of myself with um, an old lady whose house had been actually attacked by Azerbaijan. Uh, she got five areas in her home which were damaged by a spindle of a bomb. She's living in Armenia proper and her home was attacked. And then we met quite a few of the uh, citizens who lived there and they described how uh, their lives are ruined because they lived from a time immemorial on the land with livestock, and it's their way of life. But Azerbaijan has been uh, stealing their livestock. If the livestock crossed over, then they would keep them. But sometimes they would come and get them, and they'd had hardly any livestock left. But also Azerbaijan would burn the pastures, so there was no food for the livestock. So they were very sadly uh, writing off livestock as a way of living for themselves. And um, this is destruction on, on a very, very... Uh, an acceptable way.
1: Yes, it's, it's tragic. And um, I, I didn't know that you were in Sunik. In fact, we probably missed each other by maybe a week. Um, I left uh, Armenia on October
2: 25th. Um, I can send you a copy of our report. It gives the photographs of Sunik and the people we met in Sunik.
1: No, that would, that's, that would be fantastic. I just saw that uh, the, the front page of that newspaper you showed me, and I must have missed that. Um, yeah, Sunik, you know, now Azerbaijan is encroaching, as you said, on Armenia proper, um, something that Russia said really? they would get involved if that happens, based on the treaty that the two nations have. But uh, we haven't seen any of that.
2: And I think Armenia is immensely vulnerable. Yeah. And Azerbaijan and Turkey know it's very vulnerable, and unless the international community gets its act together to ensure that Azerbaijan does not get away with impunity, I'm afraid they will continue. And yes. it's not impossible that there might not be another Armenian genocide on the horizon if the international community just stands by and watches.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that that would make Turkey and Azerbaijan very happy if. Uh, the genocide resumes uh, and uh, they finally do the job that they wanted to do in 1915. I mean, Erdogan has been, uh, you know, hinting at that not, not so much hinting, even talking about it. Uh, it's a, it's a very sad situation. And I just wonder if, you know, what, what, what are the options? I feel like what are the options for Armenia and Artsakh? And what are the options for those of us that live in other Nations, diaspora, uh, and non Armenians, what can we do that we're not doing?
2: Well, just to rewind the tape for a moment, I mean, both Aliyev and Erdogan have been setting the scene for this. I'm sure you have video footage of the, uh where they both talked in Baku and how they said, you know, Yerevan used to be part of Azerbaijan, Lake Savan used to be part of Azerbaijan, etc., etc. And, um, you know, they're nobody's challenging them in the the international arena, as far as I know. And they're just getting away with everything with impunity. And my fear is that if the impunity continues, they're just getting more and more um, with impunity. So my feeling is that we have to put pressure on governments who should be um, calling Azerbaijan to account. The war crimes are well documented. The evidence is there. Your film shows some of the evidence very powerfully. Yes. And the evidence of attempting uh, well, ethnic cleansing, genocide, whatever you like, but certainly of war crimes, war crimes and crimes against humanity are very, very available. The evidence is there and powerful and incontrovertible. And the international community should be doing more about it. Um, I would hope that the big Armenian diaspora in the States might encourage the U.S. uh, government to do a bit more. Canada, I think, is quite a good track record. Canada did, I think, immediately stop sending weapons to Azerbaijan. Um, But uh, so far, the world has looked the other way. Or may have said the platitude, but um, has not really done anything to call Azerbaijan to account.
1: This is the blunt post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I'm your host Vic Gerami, and you're listening to my interview with Baroness Carolyn Cox. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, um, you know, we have a pretty, pretty sizable diaspora here in the US, and we do the, you know, I think the best that we can. We we could all do more, I think. But I was speaking with. Uh, uh, you know a congressman about this and he said the way the u.s looks at uh arts of armenia is more of a sort of a broader regional issue and it's kind of like a chess piece which is um you know i i that's really sad to see because um it, it, it's it's kind of both sideism, you know it's it goes back to uh, nations doing what's best for their own self-interest, it goes back to uh, not acknowledging who is the oppressor and who's the oppressed. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're going to look at it as a chess piece and see uh, what the power struggle is and, and do best accordingly to your self-interest, uh, uh, in this case being the US. It's a very, and as you said, Armenia is vulnerable because there's not a lot of leverage power. They you know Armenia doesn't have oil doesn't have a lot of natural resources, whatever mines it has, it's lost to Azerbaijan uh, and Russia, which was supposed to be an ally as has, uh, you know, is playing all three sides, you know, which is ultimately Russia's playing Russia's side. They're doing what's for them. Uh, Although I think just like, I think they all, all these parties know the reality, whether they admit it or not is a whole other issue.
2: Mm. I'm I'm told that Russia is doing a good job on the peacekeeping side in Artsakh. I think the people of Artsakh do appreciate that. I mean, it's their role, but I think they're not violating it. They're they're doing it honourably, which is helpful in the short term, but it's where we go from here. And the other thing that I think is so uh, outrageous and um, deserves to be called to account is the celebration of the victory in Baku Victory Park, you know, and the brutal, horrendous things, and the corridor of um, the helmets of Armenian soldiers who've been killed. And um, just walking down that, there's a a well-publicized photograph, of Aliyev walking down that corridor of helmets of dead Armenian soldiers, and then the mannequins, which are made to look grotesque and often in very uncomfortable situations. And then the, the kids, as I'm told, Are encouraged to go and beat them up and uh, show their hate, and this is this is a hate crime and war crime.
1: Yes, it's it's outrageous. It's egregious. Just just hearing you say it, it brings it all back. It all just brings it all back. It's so um, it's so fresh, you know. For Ever since September 27th of last year, I've lived this. I've, I've, my entire life has been this. I've watched the videos, I've seen the footage. It's, uh, it's just astounding, astounding that, uh, you know, um, one of the things that sort of amazes me is last year, uh, President Biden uh, fulfilled his campaign promise to recognize the Armenian Genocide, something that the House and the Senate had done, and he did. But a week later, he and Secretary Blinken turned around and uh, lifted Section 907 and supplied 100 million dollars worth of military equipment to Azerbaijan. It just it just baffles me um, when I see uh, you know, and I'm a Democrat. I voted for uh, (laughs) President (laughs) Biden, but it just baffles me when politicians really say one thing from a podium, you know. and do th- just the complete opposite.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's very challenging and very, very heartbreaking for the Armenian people. Because yes. they, you know, someone who could have been a fair ally for them and did recognize their genocide, uh, is now, as you say, saying arms to Azerbaijan and is m- making life more horrific for the Armenians, which yeah. is, is you know, so tragic.
1: Yeah, Lady Cox, what questions should I have asked you that I haven't? What would you like to share?
2: We've asked some good questions, enabling me to share a lot. But I would like to see more pressure, I think, from the diaspora. I mean, we've got a small diaspora in the UK, and it's good, uh, but you've got a huge diaspora. Uh, Raising issues and putting the evidence is now readily available, and you've got a lot of it yourself, brilliant. Um, You know, to the UN Security Council, to um, the key bodies um, to get sanctions imposed in Azerbaijan. You've got the evidence of war crimes, the evidence of um, the deliberate attacks on civilian targets. Uh, I mean, when we we were in Artsakh, when the war was just, it was still on, it was coming to an end, but we witnessed the maternity hospital, which had been bombed, which is war crime, I think at the time they were still carrying out deliveries in the basement, but after that it was entirely ruined. Um, And he witnessed the um, attack on a a college, a school, I can't remember what it was, but perhaps most serious, uh, the delivered attack on the electric power station. I've got photographs of that, um, which meant was that people hiding in basements and cellars, which is a horrible existence anyway, and wouldn't have light or heat. And uh, that was brutal. And um, the now I gather um, it happened since I was there. Uh, There've been um, attacks on water supply for people. That when we were in Armenia, just a few weeks ago, uh, we met some of our friends from Artsakh, and they said that they, uh, water was very much a problem. Um, one had to get it so getting up at three o'clock in the morning and get an hour's supply, and that was it. I don't know if it's still a problem, but it, I mean, it would seem to be consistent with Azerbaijan's deliberate policies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wow, it's, uh, you know, I'm just, it's fascinating. You're like a library, a resource of information. <laughs> so detailed, so comprehensive. It's just astonishing. Um, it's um, it's so it's just refreshing. I think um, you give hope to those people who are very close to being hopeless, who are who feel powerless, who feel forgotten, who feel um, that the world has sort of turned a blind eye, um, and you know you're just a beacon of hope, uh, and you're one of very few. In fact, well, you're one of very few, but no one comes to your level, and that's why this is so special to me. Because um, I can't fathom this documentary without you. Um, so I'm so grateful. I don't want to uh, uh, keep you any longer. Um, I'm, I'm just so grateful. I was bummed that I couldn't uh, I couldn't fly to London to interview you in person. Um, but I
2: mean, we'll meet one day, I hope. But at least the interview is the interview.
1: I would love to. Next time I'm in, I'm in London, uh, I was there in 2017 last the next time I'm there, just to come up and say hello and bring you flowers would be an honor. We'll bring some
2: um, Armenian cognac, please.
1: Oh, you got it. I'll bring you. I'll bring you the best cognacs for sure.
2: I can it will last longer than the flowers. But given all my friends who've been to Armenian arts, like, they all love it. So by the time you share that, it would be a treat.
1: Yeah, it was the Prime Minister Churchill apparently liked uh, Armenian cognac.
2: The only one he would drink, I'm told.
1: Lady Cox want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I just don't know what to say. That's going to really express how I feel. I, you know, it's just, this documentary is elevated to unbelievable heights because of you.
2: Well, check, 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 check,
1: check. Oh, shanara <laughs> gallatin <Godleton> to you. <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, look forward to being in touch. Thank you. That was my interview with Baroness Carolyn Cox which was truly a dream come true. It's always such an honor, privilege to interview someone that you've admired for so long. And she's definitely one of the top 10 people for me. I'm super grateful. Thank you so much, Lady Caroline, for your time, for your humanity, for all the work that you do. And I hope to speak with you again soon. The Blunt Post with Vic. In 1998, Congresswoman Barbara Lee was elected to serve California's ninth congressional district, now the 13th, in a special election. In 2001, Congresswoman Lee received national attention as the only member of Congress to oppose the authorization for the use of military force in the wake of the horrific events on September 11th. Congresswoman Lee has been a fierce advocate for ending HIV and ensuring an AIDS-free generation. Congresswoman Lee is the only African-American woman in Democratic leadership serving as co-chair of the Policy and Steering Committee. As co-chair, Rep Lee works to ensure that committees reflect the diversity, dynamism, and integrity of the Democratic caucus. Uh, Congresswoman Lee, uh, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you doing? Yeah,
0: doing great. Nice to be with you.
1: Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Lots is happening in this sort of transitional period, hopefully. I, I haven't yet said sort of like the ending of COVID, but transitional, maybe even escalating, unfortunately, this period. And uh, I know that you're super busy. So before I sort of ask you any specific questions, uh, what's your perception? How do you feel about where we are today?
0: think where we are today is a turning point, a defining moment. We could either go backwards and uh, regress in terms of our attempt to crush this virus or move forward. And it's so important that we encourage people to uh, get vaccinated. And I think it's important also to recognize that uh, we've got to continue with um, our health protocols, which have been stated by CDC and by our state, by local communities because this Delta variant, uh, we see what's happening and it's um, a variant that is novel. The the science is evolving every day. And we need to make sure that um, we keep ourselves, our families and our communities safe by following the guidelines and getting vaccinated and doing everything that's required. We'll get through this but everyone has to do their part. Otherwise, uh, it's gonna take much longer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll sort of have another major crisis like we did last year. Uh, thank you for that. I wanna go back, uh, um, Congresswoman, to well, what you did um, almost 20 years ago. It's the 20th anniversary is coming up uh, when your legislation, it, uh, it repealed the 20, uh, 2002, Uh, authorization for use of military force against Iraq which seems such a long time ago Um, that was a huge victory for you and the 20th anniversary is coming up for those of us who don't know you know too much about it uh, would you elaborate sure thanks and there were two
0: authorizations one was 2001 which uh, was passed by Congress uh, in three days. It was a blank check that gave any president the authority to go to war forever. That was the one that I voted uh, against uh, and no one else voted with me. Everyone voted no. I mean, everyone voted yes, excuse me, I voted no. Because it did give over authority uh, to any president to uh, wage war and that's unconstitutional. Every um, time the president needs to uh, use force he or she needs to come to Congress, but that authorization was the 2001. The 2002 authorization is an authorization that was passed in Congress that would authorize the use of force against Iraq. And for those who don't remember or who weren't even born during that period, Mm -hmm. uh, there was this whole effort by Secretary of State Colin Powell, um, President Bush, to mislead the public. Actually, they lied. They said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and we knew there were none. Um, and we tried to stop them because the inspectors were there in investigating and inspecting Iraq to determine whether there were or not. And so I offered an amendment to the, that authorization that said, just let the inspection process play out. Let the inspectors complete their their work, and then we'll determine what to do next. Well, of course, I only got 72 votes for that amendment, but had it passed and had it uh, become law, we would have learned that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was the purpose of that authorization, period, and it was based on a lie. And so I've been trying to repeal both of them <laughs> since then, and i've been able to repeal the 2001 and 2002 and appropriations bills and then authorization bills and this but we never could get them through the senate and to the white house so this year once again my bill to repeal the 2002 authorization which was the iraq resolution authorization passed through the foreign affairs committee it passed through the off the floor with, i believe 260 some votes uh so it was a good bipartisan vote now it's in the senate and uh of course well when it was in the house the president and the Biden administration issued uh what they call a sap statement of administration's policy supporting repealing it so they supported my bill which they don't support a lot that comes to the floor but i was very pleased that they did so we got it into the senate I talked with senator kane so senator kane now uh is working on a senate version which uh got off of the senate floor you know, i spoke with him this week and so um we're cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to bring it to the senate floor maybe who knows in september maybe but um also it's bipartisan and uh hopefully we'll be able to build enough votes in the senate to get it to uh, the president's desk and if we do Uh, he indicated he would sign it. And so this would be a major, major victory for those who have understood for 20 years now that the Iraq war was based on lies. There were no weapons of mass destruction. And we sent our young men and women into harm's way. They did everything they could do. We inserted ourselves into, uh, you know, a war in Iraq, a civil war where we should have never been. Countless refugees, countless um, Iraqis dead as a result destroy their country, and why did we do that?
1: I'm glad that you went there because um, I do remember all of this. I remember the case that was made, and I remember the UN inspectors repeatedly saying they haven't found any evidence. Of course, later we learned that soon after uh, President Bush took office, he instructed his cabinet to find some sort of a reason, some sort of a something that ties uh, Saddam Hussein to uh, some sort of a crime to give him reason to go in there. It's very sad. History repeats itself from Bay of Pigs to uh, you know Cuban Missile Crisis and Iran Contra. It just keeps happening. And uh, thank goodness for uh, elected officials like yourself who is willing to stand alone uh, and vote, uh, or, or I should say, vote no for something that, um, something that's just giving way too much power to one single person. I remember in that time, post 9-11, uh, it was this sort of weird uh, fear-mongering period when we as Americans, if we said no to anything having to do with the Bush administration, uh, by God, we were not patriotic. And uh, you know, you were, we were either with them or not with them or against them. Um, So congrats on that. I hope uh, with now having a a very narrow Senate majority um, that that will pass and get to President Biden. Next, um, you know, we talked a little bit about COVID. And, of course, so many Americans lost their jobs in last year and this year. And there's been some movement. There's been some improvements this year, at least so far. Um, I don't I read numbers and figures coming out from the White House as well as just publications. And I wonder how many of those sort of new jobs that are created were really jobs that were sort of, uh, (laughs) you know, people just lost them and then now they're going back or um, things like that. How do you, I know that your job creation is is on top of your priority and you're working hard on that. Uh, How do you see the situation right now?
0: Sure. And I think uh, what's important is to recognize how we've worked with the Biden-Harris administration to make sure that um, people's economic security wasn't totally destroyed during this deadly pandemic. And so we passed several bills that would fill in the gap and help people through this terrible period through the American Rescue Plan, through the CARES package and other packages to help with the extension of unemployment benefits, uh, to help with, again, eviction, um, an eviction moratorium, which we'll talk about in a minute, and also to make sure that um, when that caregivers and people in sectors that uh, essential services, uh, who are providing those essential services so that communities could survive through this period, that they're protected. Uh, And that small businesses receive the type of, uh, not necessarily loans, but grants to pay their employees, such as we provided resources for restaurants. But also for small businesses, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, to make sure that they uh, are able to at least make payroll and to survive during this period. Having said that, many have gone on a business. I know it was estimated a couple months ago that about 40% of African-American businesses just went totally under because the first tranche of the resources, there were so many barriers there that uh, the big corporations <laughs> got access to the money that we had provided right. for relief for, for businesses. So we had to go back and make sure that we set aside, I think it was $60 billion for specifically on the type of businesses, the mom and pop businesses, those that keep this country going, but don't have necessarily huge bank accounts or access to SBA loans or you know the traditional banking systems and financial systems that that the big businesses have so it's been really hard uh for people of color and and people who are running small businesses to stay afloat so uh and and of course jobs have been lost uh we some people can't afford even if there were jobs available i mean except the cost of child care especially for women who have uh, all the reports are showing that uh, they have not returned to the workplace because of taking care of their families and their children. And so chi- we're trying to make child care a priority in the American Families Plan because uh, women uh, and men need need good quality child care for their kids so they can go back to work. And finally, let me just say we need uh, the minimum wage um, raised, uh, uh, you know, to a living wage. And whats what we've learned and seen during this whole period is that um, – people were paid such low wages until they they couldn't even meet their obligations they'd have to work two or three different jobs and so with the Biden administration they, we talk about building back better but progressives say yeah we've got to build back better and bolder so that we don't get back to where people have to work two and three jobs just to survive Indeed. to take care of their families that's just unacceptable in, in this uh, wealthy and powerful country
1: much wealthier than some of the nations that have those, um, those social programs in place and have the...
0: Yeah, and and, Vic, and let me just say sure. here, I believe in a universal um, income, a guaranteed annual universal income, because we have to have a floor that people can't fall beneath. And so in my city, I know uh, Mayor Tubbs in Stockton, my city of Oakland, and other cities are using uh, trying to develop demonstration projects to show that if you help people during really hard times, that they can survive those times and move forward and get a good paying job and take care of their family. So we have to look and think out of the box on how, what economic security, what what vehicles, financial vehicles and economic uh, strategies are in place to help people beyond just uh, helping to extend
1: unemployment. A band-aid, absolutely. I think that's what, one of the reasons I really like your work, because you're not afraid to say it or do it. And... Uh, you know, with diplomacy as it is, a lot of people are sort of people pleasing uh, or trying to sort of make everyone happy all of the time. It never works. Um, yeah. What I was going to say earlier is, you know, why if we look at nations like Denmark and Norway and Belgium and Sweden that have the highest standards of living and happiest people based on surveys, you know, why can't we look to them and follow some of their model? It's just such an uphill battle.
0: Well, Beck, let me me just say this. Those countries don't have large numbers of African-Americans or people of color, okay? Uh, We have issues in America of systemic racism, and especially historical racism. for African-Americans dating back 401 years ago to the Middle Passage. So yeah, we could do it if if there was the will, but we have to dismantle these structures that are barriers to people of color. Those countries uh, don't have populations that uh, you know, they may have small populations of Africans or people of color from all around the world, but they don't have systems of injustice that have been built in since the beginning of the founding of their countries.
1: Absolutely, 100%. It's uh, institutionalized uh, racism, and a lot of times I think um, from what I've learned from some of my black friends is don't just say racism because it's too blanket, but anti-black racism, which is a whole different experience for uh, black Americans in this nation. Um, I think uh, black Americans and, and Native Americans have had a very unique traumatizing experience, uh, although other minorities too have had their fair share. In fact, um, one of my last questions was going to be, and we can get into it now, is, you know, we we have short memories and we sort of get all wound up about something and then it's passe. I was gonna ask you in this sort of post George Floyd era when we're still seeing, you know, Texas uh, police officer you know almost suffocating a young black girl, are we going to, into the right direction, or is it just too slow? Well, how do you think this is all happening
0: well it 's much too slow, and uh, we 're not painting every police officer with the same brush, but we know that many police departments are are inherently racist, and we also know the history of policing, and so we've seen brutal murder that the world saw really woke people up, right? Those who didn't believe or didn't know what systemic racism is, now they do. So what do we do about it? Minimally, we should pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I mean, minimally. Uh, I mean, come on. We need these modest reforms that ban chokeholds, that ban no-knock warrants, that set up a national registry. I mean, now police officers can go from one jurisdiction to another, even if they've murdered someone. I mean and so we've got to have some national standards for policing and we've got to have more um, funding and more resources for the front end to help make sure our our black and brown communities are truly safe uh, and know what mass incarceration has done not to mention how many black and brown people have been killed at the hands of police i mean i was a community worker with the Black Panther Party. <laughs> that was right. in the day, and we we were trying then to stop police brutality and police um, misconduct and murders. And so we have to have total police reform, and one step forward is the jo- George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, and I just have to say, to, uh, you know, Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass and Senator Booker have been working very hard to try to get the Republican, Senator Tim Scott, to understand that uh, it 's in everybody 's interest and in the country 's interest to have a, a good legislative strategy or and laws on the books, so police departments can be guided to really um, police in a way that uh, is just and fair to everyone
1: yeah and that 's a good example of what you said earlier. You said we need to sort of take down some of the structures that have built these institutional institutionalized, um, not just racism, but systems that are just not working. And one of them being our prison industrial complex of privatizing them and giving them incentives, which is driving this this whole police state. And uh, I don't know if you've been following LA District Attorney George Gascon's career since he was elected last year, who has really um, done a great job of, of doing it, you know, doing the things that he promised he was going to do during this campaign, but of course now we're seeing a backlash of people, or some people at least, wanting him recalled because he's been tough yeah. on police brutality and uh, has been trying to do, you know, criminal justice reform, and uh, we, we see some examples of that where it's mostly Republicans trying to recall Democrats but uh well,
0: yeah that's who they are and whenever you step out to try to ensure that there's justice and and reform some of these systems of injustice republicans because they they benefit from the the types of systems that are in place that's that's who they are that right. keeps them in power and that keeps white supremacy intact in this country and and we've got to shatter those you know barriers that have been built on white supremacy and racism. And Republicans don't believe that. They don't even understand it, and they could care less.
1: Yeah, I think that last, uh, that last phrase sums it up, they could care less. Thankfully, we have uh, President Biden in office and uh, um, Senator Kamala Harris or Vice President Kamala Harris now uh, to give us some hope. Um, with that, I want to transition to uh, the work you've done um, for uh, you know, as you know, um, California has about nine hundred thousand Armenian Americans, and, and your district has um, quite a lot. And you've done a, a lot of work for the Armenian American community. You're part of the Armenian Congressional Caucus. You know, tell us what's been what's been happening lately, because uh, I mean I know, but I want our listeners to hear it from you. <laughs> sure.
0: Well, from for many years, I mean, I was out front. I remember in the Foreign Affairs Committee years ago, Appropriations Committee. I actually chaired the subcommittee on Foreign Operations, which funds all of our non-defense related. Um, but I was one of the first to fight to declare um, the genocide, that um, what happened in Armenia was a genocide. Right. And uh, I've had a biz, uh, the privilege to visit uh, Armenia in 2019 with the House Democratic Partnership course we're uh, engaging in um, with the Armenian parliament to help strengthen its democracy and and so I've been very involved in Armenian issues for many many years and I've been just horrified by uh, recent uh, violent assaults that the Azerbaijani forces have perpetrated in 2020.
1: Absolutely it's very important Um, thank you for your Work on that. If you are uh, just joining us, uh, this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Chirami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Congresswoman, uh, is there a question that I should have asked that I missed, or would you like to make a point uh, or add something?
0: Well, no, let me just add this. Uh, when, when you talk about resource allocation and, and spending, we have to look at the military budget. And so I'm co-chair of the Defense uh, Spending Reduction Caucus. We, we're, we're trying to address defense spending uh, by hopefully uh, getting an, um, 10% in a 10 percent cut in the Pentagon budget.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, Congresswoman Lee, thank you for all that you do. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, much appreciated. And uh, good luck to you. Uh, I know that I'll be following uh, developments coming from your office.
0: Thank you, Vic. Really nice being with you.
1: (laughs) You too. Bye-bye. That was the beloved Congresswoman Barbara Lee from the Oakland uh, Bay Area. Her directness, her willingness and courage to speak the truth Uh, is so refreshing. Um, I really enjoy having her. This was her second time on The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, Congresswoman Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at VicGerami. At V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you.
0: The Blunt Post with Vic.